I hope that over the last few weeks you have been able to be here and see the journey that these characters have been on together. Uh, let's meet them one more time, can we? Uh, we want to introduce Paul Vink as Clark Kent. Annie Shields as Lois. Benito Hernandez, Benito Hernandez is Jimmy. And Kevin O'Day as Perry. Would you express your appreciation, please? Now, there's one person you haven't seen, but is pretty much responsible for this whole thing. Mandy, come on out. This is Mandy Leahy. She wrote these. And also, there are so many others, from musicians to people who built the set, to those who came and provided uh, special opportunities for us, or even our, our newsies out front. One, one more time, would you just express your appreciation for everyone who played a part in making this happen? Not to be too obvious, but the point of this whole thing has been that when the church lives the way that Jesus showed us how to live... It'll make the news. That's what we've been driving at this whole time. Each week, these dramas attempted to paint a picture of what it might look like when the church really lives out her mission. It's our hope that they have both delighted and challenged you as we've worked our way through these news flash moments in Mark's gospel. We have one more today. Before we begin, though, I want to start with a little bit of audience participation. Uh, I want you to think of your favorite celebrity. Favorite famous person, and you can define famous however you want. That can be historical, it can be present day, but famous person that you'd love to spend a couple days with. If you could spend 48 hours with one famous person, who would it be? I want you to think of who that is, because in just a little bit, I'm going to have you turn to your neighbor and tell them, okay? Um, I, I, I want you to, to do that, though, but before we do, let's just acknowledge we're in church, so there's this temptation that we all think that we all automatically pick Jesus, because if you don't, your neighbor will think you're not spiritual, okay? <laughs> so it's okay. You have permission. If you want to pick somebody else, uh, you can do that. Okay, turn to your neighbor and tell them who you'd love to spend, famous person you'd love to spend 48 hours with. Okay, okay, be honest. How many of you said Jesus anyway? Okay, yeah, 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 me too. Um, if you've got your Bibles, open them to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. If you're wondering, uh, my second choice is a tie between C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, in the passage we're going to study today, Jesus' presence in Jerusalem is kind of like a visiting celebrity who comes to town for a couple days. Uh, you may notice that title of that has been up on the screen. That's the title of the message today, Visiting Celebrity from Mark uh, 11, 
1 to 25. We apologize for the typo in your bulletin. Uh, that's my fault. It was an older document that didn't get updated uh, correctly. So um, Jesus comes to Jerusalem for, for a few days, and the people in Jerusalem treat him like a rock star. But he is so much more than that. He's after so much more than just a few fans. <laughs> Have you ever wished you could spend 48 hours with Jesus? I mean, we get to all the time anyway because of his presence in us, but to spend 48 hours with Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> what do you think you learn in 48 hours with Jesus? Well, it probably depends on which 48 hours you spend with him. The passage we're going to look at today covers the span of about two days. We're going to look at 48 hours in the life of Jesus and, and what he would have us learn from this section in his life. I want to thank you for being here today. Uh, if you're new to Chapel Rock, if it's your first time or you've only been here a couple weeks, I would love to meet you when we're done. Uh, my name's Casey. You can come down and say hi. I'll be right down here and we're all finished. Please come uh, introduce yourself. If you're new, I'd love to meet you. If you're joining us online, thank you so much for logging in. Uh, we're really glad that you're participating uh, with us. Each week, you're part of a community of about 150 people or so that stream our services over the internet. And and if you're local, we'd love to have you visit us uh, on site. We're concluding a sermon series today, as John mentioned earlier, through the Gospel of Mark uh, called Newsflash. And we've been looking at these moments in Mark's Gospel where he uses this one specific word, the word euthus, which, which usually gets translated immediately, at once. And so it gives Mark's Gospel this... Um, this feeling like a newscast, you know, this quick, punchy, here we go, just the facts, ma'am, kind of thing. In chapter 10, Jesus is on his way up to Jerusalem. He knows he's going there to die on the cross, in your place, for your sins. He knows he will be raised again. We'll look at that next Sunday. And as he approaches the city, we come to our text. Mark chapter 11, look with me at, at verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as, that's an important word, there's our euthus, just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here. It's translated shortly. Again, it's the word immediately, euthus. They went in and found a colt outside in the street, tied in a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there ask, what are you doing untying that colt? <laughs> Can you imagine someone, you walk out in your garage and someone's getting into your car? <laughs> You'd have some questions too, okay? They answered as Jesus had told them to. <laughs> Here's an, uh, an unrecorded miracle. And they let him go. Verse 7, when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest heaven! Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went out to find, if it had, find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not, or maybe we could translate this, not yet, the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and in a passage unique to Mark, and his disciples heard him say it. 
On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written? Implied answer, yes it is. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus blurs two Old Testament passages together. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, but does, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins." See, what Mark does in this passage is take the events of these 48 hours and record them in direct sequence, like any good biographer would do. And in doing that, he has to bounce back and forth between two themes. What I want to do this morning is pull them apart and look at each of these themes individually and, and for what they can teach us about what it means to follow Jesus. Here's the first one, theme number one, the expectation of Jesus. The expectation of Jesus. It's early Monday morning. Jesus has entered Jerusalem in a procession of triumph the day before. He's on his way back to Jerusalem, and he knows exactly what he's going to do. He's got a big day ahead of him. He wants a healthy breakfast. I don't know about what you have for breakfast. Most days, my breakfast is pretty light. I'll have a bowl of plain oatmeal, two fried egg whites, and a couple large glasses of water, a little coffee. That's it. Most days. If I'm really in a hurry, an apple or bowl of cereal or something. But Saturdays are different. On Saturdays, we have time. There's nothing really going on. We try to schedule our Saturdays pretty light. So when we finally get up and around, Deb will make up pancakes or waffles. I'll scramble some eggs. We'll make some bacon, big pot of strong coffee, you know. Uh, we'll just, we'll just really, sometimes we'll go get donuts for the kids. And it's just, it's one of those moments in our family life where we just really enjoy this nice, big breakfast. I love Saturdays. Breakfast is not only the most important meal of the day, it's also the best one. Can I get an amen? Thank you. Um, I love this. Apparently, Jesus likes breakfast, too, okay? Uh, and, and maybe he really was uh, profoundly hungry. The text tells us he's staying in Bethany. That's the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. I guess Martha hadn't gotten up early to fix breakfast that day. Kind of her thing. So Jesus was leaving Bethany. He's near Bethphage. That word literally means the house of figs. And he sees a fig tree. In full leaf. Now, the fig tree has a long and important history in the Bible. It was with fig leaves that Adam and Eve covered themselves after their fall. In the book of Numbers, it's, uh, figs are part of the fruit that the 12 spies who go into Canaan to spy out the land bring back with them to show them, the, the Joshua and the people, that this is a land flowing with milk and honey. In Deuteronomy 8, 8... <laughs> Fig trees are connected with the covenant blessing of God, that there would be figs. In Luke's gospel, 
Zacchaeus is hanging out in a sycamore fig tree. <laughs> I mean, literally hanging. Um, that's where he meets Jesus. In the prophets, the fig tree was often used as a symbol of Israel's relationship with God. This is not just a tree, it's also a symbol in Scripture. And that shapes the way we look at this passage. So Jesus goes to see if he can find any fruit. Now this is where the text becomes difficult. Almost all Bible scholars agree that they really wish Matthew and Mark would have left this story out of their gospel. Luke and John, in fact, do. They don't record this. Now, there are a couple reasons that this passage is difficult. First of all, in Matthew's account, in Matthew 21, starting in verse 18, it says that the tree withered, and and the NIV translates the word immediately. And, And people are like, well, did it wither immediately, or was it overnight? What happened? Well, some of that's a translation issue. It's a different word translated immediately in Matthew 21 than what Mark uses. The word in Matthew can also just mean suddenly, quickly. And to think about it, a full-grown tree withering from the roots overnight is quickly. It's not instant, and that's why Matthew does not use the word euthus immediately, at once. It's, it's not like that. So some people get that mixed up. Um, they just need to look, I think, at the words. The second reason this is difficult is it says that Jesus didn't find any fruit because it was not the season for figs. Now, let's talk about that for a second. I think um, that's an accurate translation. It's not the season for figs. Maybe the way to think about it is it was not yet the season for figs. It's spring. It's Passover season. So the tree is in full. How many of you have trees in your yard completely leafed out, all ready to go, bright green? Yeah, I didn't think so. So Jesus looks out and he sees this tree in full leaf, right? So, oh, wow, okay, it's, it's early, it's blooming early. So if it's in full leaf in spring, we should expect, oh, maybe it's just ahead of schedule. There should be some figs, but there aren't figs. It's not the season for figs. So there are signs, there's an outward appearance of fruitfulness, but no actual fruit. That's significant. See, Jesus goes and he, he looks for, he sees, he has an expectation. Oh, well, it's fully leafed out. There should be fruit and there's no fruit. And so he curses the tree. It's a miracle of destruction. It's the only one Jesus ever did. And the word curse there means exactly what you think it means. <laughs> a miracle uh, that, that is, um, you know, to bring harm by supernatural operation. See, this thing, this detail here in the text is a clue for the reader to look beyond the surface meaning and see its symbolic meaning. If it's not the right time to have figs, and, and, Jesus, and there's no figs, then there's the, the, the point there is you're supposed to see this as a symbol. Now, did it literally happen this way? Absolutely. But there's more to it. It's more than just the literal story. There's, there's some symbolic meaning here, too. He looks at the tree. He says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and it withers. The next day, Peter says, teacher, look, the fig tree you cursed withered. <laughs> and he says, yeah, yeah. Now, here's what, what I think Jesus had in mind here. It's, this is not just random, capricious, I don't like that, I'm mad at that tree, <laughs> I think what Jesus had in mind here is a passage from the book of Hosea. In Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, we read this. When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert, unexpected. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. There's this expectation, oh, wow, 
There's fruit there. But when they came to Baal Peor, they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol and became as vile as the thing they loved. See, I think Jesus had this passage in mind when he cursed the tree. He's using the tree as an enacted parable of the state of Israel's relationship with God. Looks great on the outside, looks great from a distance, and you get close, there's no fruit. He expects to see fruit, and there's nothing. They had tons of potential that they were not using. I sure hope that's not true for anybody in this room. That you got a lot of potential. And outwardly looks great. But inside there's no fruit. Upon closer inspection, there's nothing really going on there. The fact that it was not yet the season for figs is incidental. Jesus is using this as an example, as a lesson for his disciples. He's trying to reinforce the teaching that he, as we're going to talk about in a little bit, was going to do at the temple. Which is why his answer to Peter takes the form that it does. <laughs> Jesus, or Peter says, look, the tree withered. And, and Jesus answers, have faith in God. Let me show you how to pray. <laughs> Wait, are we having the same conversation? <laughs> because what you just said does not make sense with what I said. It, it, it's really, it's kind of odd until you understand that Jesus is saying that the tree withered because he had a complete and total expectation that God would answer his prayer. He, now, he did that miracle knowing that it was within the broader will of God. And you need to understand, I don't think that Jesus is commanding you to pray for ridiculous stuff and expect to receive it because you don't doubt. I think he's trying to teach his disciples that the product of expectant faith is seeing God do amazing things. We need to have the kind of radical faith that would ask big stuff from God. The application here is not that we need to walk around killing trees and chucking mountains in the sea. I think what God wants us to get from this passage this morning is that Jesus is hungry. He's expectant. He's hungry for his people to pray big prayers and expect to see God do big things. William Carey is the name of a man who's pretty much responsible for the global missions movement in the modern era. Prior to that, most Christians in Europe and America didn't give a hoot about the pagans scattered around the world, and it was in the late 1700s that William Carey organized a missionary society, and he preached this inaugural message. This is the title of his sermon that, that began this great mo movement to take the gospel around the world, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And I think one of the lessons we can learn from this on this Palm Sunday is about the expectation of Jesus. Jesus prayed fully expecting God to answer. Now, Jesus had an insight into the will of God that you and I are constantly learning how to do and how to draw closer to. But he's trying to challenge you to say, listen, do you, when you pray, do you pray big prayers? Do you expect God to do big things? Or, or are your prayers limited to, please, God, help my cat get over its cold? Now, God loves your cat. But I think he's more concerned about seeing redemption and wholeness in our society. 
I think God cares more about seeing unity among various ethnicities. I think God cares more about seeing hurting, broken people find healing in Jesus' name. Does God love your cat? Sure. But I think he's much more passionate about seeing us walk out of our brokenness toward wholeness in Christ and modeling that in the community. The same thing you saw in the dramas, how when the church lives out the way Jesus called us to live, it'll change a community. It'll make the news. We've got no time like the present. Next Sunday's Easter. We're going to start a brand new sermon series called You Ask For It. Remember about two months ago, we asked for you to submit questions. We're going to begin to answer those over the next five weeks. This is a great opportunity to invite your friends. We're going to be talking about some really significant questions that that not only church people ask, but people not in church are wondering too. Next week, we'll talk about why was Jesus in the tomb three days? The next week, what happens when we die? The week after that, how should the church handle gender? That's PG-13. There are invitation cards at, at the information center. If you know someone you've been thinking about inviting, please stop by the information center, get one of those cards, just inviting them to our services. They can check it out online. It's got the resources for them there to do that. Can I challenge you the same way today? Jesus is hungry for, he expects his people to pray big prayers and then expect God to do big things. Now, he wants that from us because he modeled it himself. So why would we do that? Well, that's the second theme that we see in this passage. The second theme is the total ownership of Jesus. We talked about his expectation. Let's talk about his ownership. Let's back up in time a little bit. It's midday on Sunday. Jesus is coming to Bethphage, house of figs, and Bethany, two little suburban villages on the other side of the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. He calls a couple of his disciples, we don't know which ones, gives them very specific instructions, go into town just as you enter it, immediately, there's our newsflash moment, euthus, you'll find a donkey's colt no one's ever ridden, you bring it back here, if anyone stops you, you tell them the Lord needs it and, and he'll send it back shortly, immediately, euthus. The interesting thing is, so he uses it twice, Mark uses that word twice here in, in real short order, and the interesting thing is, we will not see it again until way late in chapter 14. This word just kind of drops out. He's been using it consistently through his whole gospel. And then all of a sudden, it's just gone. We see it twice here, boom, boom, and then it disappears. Now, here's the effect that that has on you if you're reading this in the original language. You get used to this immediately, 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 and then it's gone. And what that does is it makes it slow way down. Time slows down. What if you had 48 hours to spend with Jesus and it, it, it just, it, it slowed way down. Okay, what am I going to learn here? What am I going to learn from Jesus? We don't see this pop up again until he is betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane by Judas. See, Mark 11, 1 starts a new section in this book. If you were to keep reading, you'd go back to, yeah, that was a, that was a turning point here in the gospel you get this sense that some kind of countdown has started. And, and we started this, but it's going real slow. Marcus, boom, 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 boom. We're moving along. We're going. And then, whoa. As we get closer to the cross, we slow way down because he really wants you to pay attention to this theme. These two disciples bring the colt to Jesus. The guys talk, toss their coats on the back, kind of make an impromptu saddle. And some of them begin to throw their cloaks down in the road. Some cut branches and, and throw them down 
in the road. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kingly symbol. It's a sign of royal homage. Here comes the king. King Jesus is approaching Jerusalem uh, from the Mount of Olives. Can you see this? People are wandering alongside the party. It's just this giant wandering party, this celebration. People are shouting and clapping and yay! They come over the crest of the mount and spread out before them is the city of Jerusalem. Can you see this? Let me show you what this looks like. There's a picture here. I, was, I took this in Israel this summer. It's a little hard to see because it was late in the afternoon. The sun was kind of in my eyes. But we're standing on the Mount of Olives. In front of you, in, in the foreground, is a Jewish cemetery. I don't know if you can see it, but there's the Dome of the Rock. That, there's the temple complex. You go over the hill, whew, there's Jerusalem. It is the most beautiful city in the world, I'm convinced. Everything is white stone. It's just, it's just jaw-droppingly beautiful. That's what he sees. He comes over the hill. There's Jerusalem. The king is coming home, and in the middle of this giant party is Jesus on a donkey's colt. Now, these Jews knew their prophets, and they must have had fireworks going off in their head in this moment because they knew the prophecies about the Messiah. And in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Do you understand these people? Jesus comes over the hill, the Mount of Olives, this, this incredible uh, connection. He looks out on the city. He's riding a donkey. Everyone's like, this is it. Here we go. Okay, it's Messiah time. And he goes to the temple. He looks around a little bit, goes home. What is going on? The crowd begins to shout in that moment, Hosanna literally means save now, but it, became, it came to be an inscription of praise. They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus comes at the end of this procession, looks around, does a little recon, <laughs> goes home. Next day, he's back, and he's back with a vengeance. First thing, he goes into the temple, and he cleans house, right? Indiana, Jesus, and the temple of God, just stuff going everywhere. <laughs> starts forcibly throwing the people out that are buying and selling. In fact, it says he's driving them out. It's the same word that's used to talk about him casting out demons. It says that he's overturning their tables. In Greek, that's the word katastrophe. Catastrophe. <laughs> Our word in English comes directly from that word. It's stuff going everywhere. It's just Jesus is chucking stuff. And verse 16 is unique to Mark. It says that he wouldn't even let people carry stuff across the temple court. Now you're like... So, what's the big deal? The temple court was this wide open space that had a gate that led immediately out of the city. It was a shortcut. People would use walking through that as a shortcut because there, I mean, Jerusalem's winding streets, merchants everywhere, come by this, come by this, and they just, I just need to get out of town. So they just cut right across. It was a shortcut. And he wouldn't let him do it. If he saw, Jesus, he sees somebody carrying something. No, no, no. I mean, he just, think about this. This area is the size of 20 or 30 football fields. One guy takes over. You want to talk about ownership. You want to talk about a sense of commanding the presence of an entire blocks and blocks of a city. One guy. 
Jesus stands there on guard. He's shouting, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. Now, you need to understand that the temple courts, the way they were set up, is you have an outer court of the Gentile, then the court of the women, then the court of the men, then the, the area immediately in front of the temple where the sacrifices happened. It, it gets narrower and smaller as you go. And what had happened is the Jews of this time took the court of the Gentile, this outer court, and they turned it into a market. All right. Now, if you want to imagine what that's like, it would be like this. It would be like if you combined um, the, the San Antonio livestock auction with the customs department at LAX airport. That's what it's like. Can you imagine trying to have church in that environment? Can you imagine trying to pray in the middle of a livestock auction and people get paying taxes? Walk, walk. It, it was ridiculous. It was crazy. And I don't think that Jesus was ticked that there was a market in the court of the Gentiles. I think he was ticked that there's a market there at all. All right? For, for two reasons. First of all, there's literally a market next door. Let me show you a picture I took this summer. Okay? The wall on the right is the base of the Temple Mount. That's, as you go up the wall and over, that's the temple. The street that you see where the people are standing, that's a first century street. Jesus would have walked on that road. Do you see the building on the left? You see the doorways? It's kind of hard to make out. There are doorways in that wall. Do you know where those doorways go? A market. Those are the doorways to the market. There was a market literally next door across the street to the temple. And yet, the people in Jesus' time had set one up in the court of the Gentiles because it was convenient. What they had done is take their own preferences, their own sense of entitlement and convenience and elevate it above the opportunity of the Gentile people to come as close as they possibly could to God in that time. And friends, this convicts me because may it never be said of us, that we elevated our convenience over what it takes to get people to come to God. Church, don't you ever let what's convenient for you outrank someone who's far from God coming to know him. See, Jesus, when he saw that, <laughs> he was upset. I don't think his feelings have changed much in 2,000 years. Just because it's convenient for us doesn't mean it's right. See, look at verse 17. <laughs> he says, it is my house. It's my house. The other gospel writers tell us that Jesus spends the rest of the day, indeed the rest of the week, teaching these lessons at the temple. Lessons about faith and ownership and his identity. Listen to me. Jesus wants followers who recognize his claim of ownership on their lives. The mindset of a disciple is one that recognizes the total ownership of Jesus. The mindset of a follower of Christ is that everything I have is the Lord's. It's his donkey. It's his temple. It's his tree. His ownership gives our lives direction. A line that's often been frequently attributed to D.L. Moody speaks to us here. He's often quoted as saying, the world has yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated to him. 
He's talking about ownership here. He's saying God owns it. It's all his. Will you let him have all of you? See, the theme that Mark is expressing here is is this idea of ownership, except, well, the world did see it one time, if I could differ with Brother Moody here for a second. (laughs) The world did see it one time. They saw it in the person of Jesus. He was fully consecrated to God. And that's what he wants his followers to be like. If we're going to be like him, we have to say, it's not my life, Jesus. It's your life. It's not my house, Jesus. It's your house. It's not my car, Jesus. It's your car. It's not my wallet, Lord. It's your wallet. These aren't my kids, God. They're yours. These aren't my words, Lord. They're yours. See, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. And that price was the shed blood of Jesus. See, the lesson of the triumphal entry is the same one as that of the fig tree. Newsflash, because of the cross, Jesus owns you. You're his. So what's that mean? Well, that's today's big idea. Newsflash, you can expect big things from God when he has total ownership of your life. My question for you this morning is this. Does he? Does he really have total ownership of you? See, for a lot of people in Jesus' day, he was just a visiting celebrity. To borrow my friend Kyle's language, they were fans, not followers. What about you? Are you just a fan of Jesus? Or are you a follower? If that's true, then you may have some repenting to do, to recommit yourself to being 100% His. Maybe you're here this morning and you've experienced some disappointment with God. You're struggling with this ownership issue. You maybe at one time you made a decision and, and things didn't go your way and you're like, ah, forget it. <laughs> And you're back today, and you're like, you know what? Let's give it another shot. I want to challenge you this morning. God wants to have total ownership of your life. Will you make that commitment today? Will you, you have an opportunity to respond to that. We're going to stand and sing together in a little bit. And if you've got an area of your life where you need to say, maybe just right where you are, you can have it. There'll be people down here to pray with you. If you want someone to pray with you about this, to say, man, there's this area where I'm just, I said he could have it, and I took it back, and... I just want him to have all of me. Maybe today you're being challenged to pray bigger prayers and expect God to do bigger things, but you're not sure what that looks like. Again, we'll have decision counselors down here. Maybe that's a part of a bigger conversation that you want to have. You can go to the next step room under the yellow awning. There'll be a leader there who will talk with you. Maybe today you've never given your life to Jesus. You've never had the opportunity. Well, you've got it today. You can give him all of it. Just here, Lord, I stink at this. You do it. You can give him all of your life. You have that opportunity as we stand and sing together this morning. Will you do that with me? Let's stand and sing to Jesus today. I don't know if we got 48 hours or 48 centuries, but let's be faithful and sing to him until he comes. Here we go. I could just sit. I could just sit and wait for all your goodness, hope to feel your presence. And I could just stay, I could just stay right where I am and hope to feel you, hope to feel 
Be safe. 